In quite a number of the suttas um, or discourses of the Buddha, there is a, uh, <clears throat> a description of the path called the gradual training. And in that uh, gradual training, there, there's a practice that I, I find establishes uh, mindfulness. It's yet another way of establishing mindfulness uh, in a way that I find quite potent, quite liberating. And what I'd like to do is I'd like to share with you some reflections on this practice, really in a way that, that also fits for me in, you could say, some modern understandings of how stress and suffering arise that you might find relevant, and also something that we can explore here on retreat. And the practice is the practice of sense restraint, or sometimes it's called guarding the senses. And it's kind of a misleading name. It kind of describes it, and it kind of doesn't. And we'll get into that. Uh, I think a better way of understanding this as I go on is it's, you could say it's a particular way of, of being aware at the sense doors, aware at the sense doors that is in a protective way. But you could say it's a protective way that opens up this possibility for the heart to respond rather than the heart to be reactive. And it's uh, noticing kind of what comes in the sense doors and what the mind does with those things and stepping out of some of the complications that can arise. We're going to get to that. But before, I want to share with you the context that I want to share with you uh, these reflections around sense restraint or being aware of of the sense doors in a way that allows our heart to respond. And the, the particular context is, you could say, this context right here. Here we are, alone and together. And you've probably noticed this on retreat. There are these qualities that you're probably sensing into. There's a, a, a probably flavors of aloneness that are sometimes supportive or difficult. And then there's also flavors of togetherness that are sometimes supportive, sometimes they're difficult. And this is... Uh, an aspect of retreat. Another way of putting it is, uh, it's like in the context of all of these bodies coming together and navigating each other in the silence. And it's of course, navigating our own bodies in this way. And in this context of other bodies, have you noticed how the mind creates people. Notice that? Phew, I'm not the only one. (laughs) And it can be just through one sense gate. It could be through hearing or seeing or um, sensing in other ways. For example, the seeing of bodies, just in the periphery of your attention. I've noticed this in the periphery of my attention. Sometimes there sometimes Bodies are moving. Sometimes they're still. There's sounds of bodies. There's the sounds of bodies walking softly. There's the sounds of bodies walking loudly. The sounds of bodies striking a bell or the sounds of bodies eating. The smells of bodies, the thoughts of bodies. And from this experience of bodies, the mind creates people. And 
hopefully you've noticed, sometimes it creates people in unskillful ways. And we could say, you know, at times maybe this might be a benign thing to do, but then it has ramifications. So just a few examples of this. I remember it was over a decade ago, my partner and I were over at our friend's house and they had their, their kids were, I don't know, maybe around five years old and seven years old. And, uh, you know, we're hanging out with the family, had dinner, and we, we kind of knew the kids, but not a lot. And I remember going back home after that, and we were just chatting about the kids. And we were like, oh, yeah, the, uh, the seven-year-old, he's so shy and withdrawn. Oh, but the five-year-old, she is so extroverted and vivacious. And there was something joyous about it. We were noticing certain behaviors. But what we also noticed is that 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 can become a confinement. Oh, that's the shy one. That's the one that's always withdrawn. Oh, the other one, that one's extroverted. And eventually what can sometimes happen is there's a boxing in. And maybe you've even felt this when somebody else has done this to you. Boxed in in a particular way because someone has created you in a certain way. Another example of this, this is uh, from a friend of mine sharing with me. And I, I know this is a little bit extreme, but, it, but it, it exemplifies it. And this friend was sharing with me that in her family, the parents had a really clear idea of what the, the kids should be doing and what their interests are. And so sometimes what would be happening is, like my friend, she, she got interested in the piano, and then the, the mother was like, oh, no, 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 that's, that's what your sister does. She's the musician. No, you're the one that's really good at reading. Yeah, that's your domain. That's, that's not your domain. Oh, it's not math. That's your, brother's, that's your brother's domain. He's really good at that. You're the one that reads. Oh, and then when the artistic one got interested in uh, kind of reading and writing and things like that, is no, 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 you're the artistic one. You're the one that's supposed to be drawing. And... And in some ways, it does sound extreme. But we do this to each other, don't we? And you've probably experienced this in in many ways. It can confine, it it can trap when when we create each other at times, especially if there's an unskillfulness with these perceptions. So this is how the mind, it creates others through perception, and then we sometimes get entangled with those perceptions and confine other people. There's nothing wrong with saying shy or extroverted, but am I taking it the next step and getting entangled in that? Caught. And confining others. It's, it's this dynamic that uh, was put well by Anais Nen. She said, we do not see things as they are, we see them as we are. In terms of what we want and don't want, what we crave and don't like, what we grasp onto and what we're averse to, what bothers us and enchants us. And I want to also name the obvious. Of course, have you noticed how your mind does this to yourself? I should be like this. Anybody have that sentence come up in your mind this week, this retreat? There it is, like, oh, I, I, the attempt to create myself in a particular way that, 
that is just habitual. I'll refer back to that. It's going to be more about other bodies, but but it's going to be about this body here as well. So tonight, it's taking some time about how we create others and in part how we create ourselves, as I said, in unskillful ways and how to step out of that through sense restraint or being aware of the sense doors in a way that opens up a responsive heart rather than a reactive one. And I want to share this with you in this frame of we do not see things as, as they are. We see them as we are. And then to take one more step with this. And we, we are society. This mind, in part, is shaped by society. Krishnamurti speaks to this. He says, if you don't know how your own mind works, you cannot actually understand what society is. Because your mind is part of society. It is society. Your reactions, your beliefs, your going to the temple, the clothes you wear, the things you do and don't do, and what you think. Society is made up of all this. It is the replica of what is going on in your own mind. So your mind is not apart from society, is not distinct distinct from your culture, from your religion, from your various class divisions, from the ambitions and conflicts of the many. All of this is society, and you are a part of it. And in, in some ways, I, this has been helpful for me, and it overlaps with this quality of not-self, some ways, it's a way of being responsible but not taking it so personally. Like, you know, all those messed up, crazy thoughts and tendencies that can arise, they're not about you. <laughs> That's the conditioning of society. And of course, the, the obvious place it, it can take the form is like the, the, the form of judging and comparing mind, which you're, I won't talk about directly, but you'll hear overlap with some of them, of what I'm pointing to. And Krishnamurti uh, continues here. He says, since the habit of pattern thinking has already been established in you, even if you do revolt, it is within the pattern. It is like prisoners revolting in order to have better food, more conveniences, but always within the prison. When you seek God or trying to find out what is right government, it is always within the pattern of society which says, this is true and that is false. This is good and that is bad. This is the right leader and these are the saints. So your revolt, like the so-called revolution brought about by ambitious or very clever people, is always limited by the past. That is not revolt. That's not revolution. It's merely heightened activity a more valiant struggle within the pattern. Real revolt, true revolution, is to break away from the pattern and to inquire outside of it. For me, this path and this practice 
in Krishnamurti's words, is the true revolution. It's a chance to, to step out of the prison, not just get better food, to step out of it. To step out of, out of what he calls this pattern thinking. And for me, when I sometimes read these early Buddhist texts, that's what I find is this, this, the Buddha that I discover is the one that's, you could say, so down for this true revolution. A revolution that would transform the mind and therefore transform society, at least in part. Of course, that's a complex project. This is the Buddha I hear speaking to me, the one I discover. And just as some examples of this, one of the things I'm so struck by, and I, th- I think it was interesting to see the, to understand the contrast of this compared to the Zen tradition, which I was practicing in, is how the, the Buddha situated awakening really within an ethical dimension, an ethical context. One of the definitions of awakening, it's a mind that's free of greed, hatred, and delusion. It's free of these unskillful, ethically unskillful qualities of heart and mind. That's very different than, for example, a vision of that the, the path is, or awakening is about becoming one with Brahma. Those are really different in terms of how they're articulated. So it's a speaking of uh, one aspect of awakening that is, is intertwined with being in the world in a different way being in the world in a more ethical way, in a way of non-harming. And I do think this also changes in, in Buddhism, as Buddhism kind of goes through different cultures, is that sometimes that ethical dimension uh, uh, ceases to be as central, as interwoven with sometimes the way that awakening's uh, spoken about. And then to combine this with uh, just some interesting critiques that the Buddha had about some of the societal di- dynamics around him. For example, you know, uh, some Brahmin had visited him and asked him what he thought about this Brahminical system that divides people into four classes, with the Brahmins, of course, being superior and everyone else being inferior in, on certain levels. And it was a system primarily based on the family you were born into. And his sentiment was, is, yeah, that's not so cool. Okay, that's a liberal translation of the, of the Pali, but <laughs> it's a good one. <laughs> you know, just because someone was born into family doesn't make them better than others. And he comes back to this point. And, and you see him speak against this. Like, for example, a Brahmin asked him about this idea of Brahmins being born from the mouth of Brahma, of God. And that's what makes them superior. And he basically says, yeah, no, I've actually seen you born from your mother's body like the rest of us. (laughs) I don't know where you got the story. Like, (laughs) it's not lining up with, with what I'm seeing. So, having a, a, a different sense of that and being sensitive, to me at least, the, the, the unskillfulness of such a system. 
or in the Vasetta Sutta, the Buddha gives this helpful explanation in this context. He says, you know, with animals, other than uh, human animals, you can distinguish them by the, their colors and their markings, by their bodies, you could say. But you can't do that with humans. It doesn't fit. You can't distinguish who is better than another by how people look. It doesn't work that way. Again, this undermining of, to me, from a modern perspective, of these societal dynamics and how it's interwoven for me with this vision of the flavor of awakening that he was inviting us to, to, to discover. And, and I think we can also see, which I don't want to go into so much like this, that so much of what he was sharing is, is this, this insight that we do not see things as they are. We see them as we are. And yeah, we, we are in part society. This true revolution to step out of all that for the benefit of all beings. So yeah, this this modern iteration of uh, the practice of sense restraint, specifically around bodies. Of course, it's it's applicable to any sense experience. It's a term that is commonly misunderstood because sometimes when people hear sense restraint, it can sound like what it means is that we should be shutting down our senses. And the young Brahmin Uttara asked the Buddha that very thing. Okay, so, so you mean that I'm supposed to be closing my eyes and, and plugging my ears, etc., etc.? And the Buddha was like, no, 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 that's not what I'm talking about. I'm, I'm, I'm referring to something else. And so I want to share with you this passage that explains... Um, the the practice of sense restraint and and to just listen because we're going to have to unpack it a little bit and to uh, apply this a little bit because it's thick quite uh, thick and dense in some ways and in this passage he's going through all the sense gates and just as a caveat I do want to also uh, normalize and for us to remember that all of us have you could say that for each sense for each of us where we are is on a huge spectrum. You know, so, some of us have a real sensitivity to what we can smell, and other people can't smell very much. The same with taste. Sometimes people have a real sensitivity around taste or can't taste very much. You know, they don't taste very much. In terms of the body, sometimes people, the body is so sensitive, things can really impact the body in a way, and other people not so much. The same with sight, a whole range and the same with hearing this whole range. And that's all part of human experience. It's not like if you have a certain kind of mixture of senses that you're, again, less human or more human. That's just natural that it's like that. Okay, so he he begins with uh, sight. He says, on seeing a form with the eye, a practitioner, this is the description of sense restraint of how to do this, and seen a form with the eye, a practitioner does not grasp at any theme or sign, you could say, theme or details, 
by which if they were to dwell without restraint over the faculty of the eye, unskillful qualities such as greed, such as grasping, you could say, or dejection or aversion might assail them. And then he goes on and on, on hearing a sound with the ear. A practitioner, their skill is not to, to grasp onto any theme or detail around this experience in a way that, that it's going to lead to unskillful qualities of this reactivity of the heart. So the thing we, we need to understand is uh, that sense restraint is, is this activity of not grasping at the theme or secondary characteristics of a, of a sense object. Let's connect this with bodies a little bit. What are these themes and secondary characteristics? And to keep it simple, I want to keep it simple for the intensive purpose of this, of this talk, is that you could say they are the initial perceptions that arise from the experience of a sense object. For example, you're kind of mindfully walking down a hall, coming into the meditation hall here, through the dining, dining hall, and a body passes, and there's the eye, there's eye consciousness, there's a form, and they come together. This is contact. This is a moment of experience. And from that, there are themes and details that arise in, in the mind. In other words, there's perceptions that arise in the mind. For example, so quickly, one of the perceptions that arise is a sense of the age of that person. Like it can be really quick. Just a, it's not even a thought. It's like a perception. Older, younger. There's that, that, what the Buddha would call theme and details or theme and secondary characteristics. We can just simplify it to perception, age. Older person, younger person. A perception of gender can be really quick. Now remember, you know, we, probably most of the people here that you don't know, you have no idea how they identify in terms of gender, but it, there can be this sense that the mind's been so habituated in a way that it's like, oh, it's often very binary, right? Oh, man, woman. Perception. These characteristics. A perception of the size or ability of a certain body. It's right there. It's, it, the, the mind is picking it up. The skin color of a body, it's picking it up. And there's nothing inherently, necessarily inherently wrong with those perceptions. At times they can be used skillfully, but our minds can get entangled with those perceptions in unskillful ways. And often, sometimes what can happen is we can be just like those Brahmins that are just following and reinforcing an oppressive societal system. Because what can happen around those perceptions is there can be the arising of grasping or aversion, the arising of attraction for one thing, a, a distaste for another thing. Or at other times, you might notice what the mind is doing is it sometimes is skipping over somebody's not really recognizing them and then really seeing other bodies so that some bodies become very visible and other bodies become very invisible. 
which when it becomes habitual, a habit that happens just again and again, right? the, the whole process of what's, who's visible and invisible renders some people more valuable than other people. And there can be fear or worry of other bodies because of these perceptions. Yet in terms of walking down the hall, a person maybe you've never really met, maybe a 15-minute conversation or something like that, you have no idea about most anything about them. And I do want to the caveat here, it's the common caveat I give. It's the nearly universal caveat I give, which is not to universalize anything that I share in terms of practices. So in particular, the one aspect that I want to share this is around is the sense sometimes that we can have around a body of being worried or concerned. For example, worry and concern might arouse, arise around someone you don't know really well, and it can be really good to listen to that. I'm more speaking about the unskillful habit of that. So it's not getting to the point of, okay, I'm just going to love everybody and everything's going to be okay. Navigating the world, especially how we're socially located, is more complex than that. And so I I, want to be clear about that, just to be cautious about overgeneralizing really anything that I, I share. So let's take the next step of unpacking this, just of what happens when, when, when the mind brings in a body and with just these perceptions, maybe some of these perceptions that I just shared. So in one, it was a very large st- study. There was, uh, they used data from over 700,000 participants. That's, that's a good data set. And what they did, part of the... Uh, the study was flashing images of people appearing to be different ages. And what very, very clearly came out was this implicit bias against older-looking bodies and an implicit bias towards younger-looking bodies. And this was found in participants of all ages. And to keep it very simple, implicit bias, you know, there are these attitudes that the mind has and you can say in this language of, of this retreat, it's, it's how the mind initially reacts, which often can go unnoticed. And this bias, when there's a, a, a bias like this, I'm proposing for us to see these as these unskillful qualities of grasping and aversion that the Buddha said might assail us when we don't restrain the senses when we don't pick up on these perceptions and run off with them. Because that's what can happen as we, we get caught in these perceptions, even around older, younger. So I'm pointing this out to point out that ageism is a real thing in our society. Workplace discrimination in regard to age is, still continues, at least in this country. And I also want to point out... Um, they, in the study, they also uh, were studying what's called explicit bias. So explicit bias is what you would say to someone if they, some, if they asked you if you were biased against older people. And often what we tell people uh, often does not line up with implicit bias, especially meditators. It's like, oh, I'm a good person. 
I love everybody. I really like old people. Some of my best friends. <laughs> you know where the biggest discrepancy between explicit bias and implicit bias was? Older people. So just this reminder, your mind, we do not see things as they are. We see things as, we don't see things as they are. We see things as as we are. And your mind is in part society. And when not deeply understood, it keeps the ills of society going. They gain momentum, you could say, from people not practicing in this way. And, and I want to be clear, this, this practice is not to get the mind to stop fabricating these themes or details such as age, but rather not to be hooked by them in an unskillful way. This is really important. I'm, when I'm not hooked in an unskillful way, that's when my heart can behold others more easily through these other perceptions that we're cultivating, like kindness and compassion and appreciative joy and the need for equanimity intertwined with all those. Are, are you hearing how this path around just sense restraint, it can, it can transform the heart and mind that I hope can in turn, at least in part, transform the world that we live in. And while you're here at IMS or in the meditation hall, dining hall, outside, it's not just around age that the mind fabricates in these ways that have the potential for us to get entangled with. Or as the Buddha says, that we might get assailed by the reactivity of the mind. It's around gender. As I, I, I mentioned, you probably have no idea how most of these bodies identify their gender. But have you noticed how it can feel like you know? Right? It's, it's, it's one of the, the, the first things they say that the mind picks up. It, it, it determines this even if we're not thinking about it. And hopefully, all of you know, the the bias against women and transgender folks is still alive and well in subtle and not so subtle ways, especially currently. This is still a problem. This is how society functions still. This happens around the size of bodies, the same thing. There's... You know, which is also intertwined with the perceived attractiveness of bodies, the bodies that our minds give attention to, and the bodies that we can skip over or avoid. The ability of bodies, the skin color of bodies, the way bodies move or don't move. It can happen also around group norms, and maybe you've noticed this. Maybe it happens around the bodies that walk when everyone is sitting or sit when everyone is walking. Thoughts about the bodies that are absent or present from the hall. Do you notice how all this can happen right here? And again, there's, there's so many of these uh, statistics around that. You know, bias against people with larger body size has increased in the last many years rather than decreased. Other biases have slowly decreased, such as around sexual orientation. 
or skin color bias. So there's a, a study from the School of Law at the University of Michigan on wrongful convi- convictions. And in the study where they're studying wrongful convictions, all this data, I mean, this is a, a really comprehensive study. Innocent blacks, so someone who is innocent of the crime, they're seven times more likely to be convicted of murder than innocent white people. Seven times more likely to get a wrongful conviction conviction for something they didn't do. And then it's even higher. So when it comes to drug crimes, innocent blacks were 12 times more likely to be convicted than innocent whites. And to remember, this study is about cases in which it was eventually determined that the, that the person was wrongly convicted. It's not taking into account someone who had been convicted but just didn't have the power to, to, for the system to understand that they were wrongly convicted. So given the, how race crosses with poverty, of course these rates are probably much higher than this. And what is the justice system, right? It's, it's fueled by minds and bias. It's fueled by minds that get hooked by these themes and details entangled in a way that leads to unskillfulness. We do not see things as they are. We see them as we are. And we are society. So James Baldwin wrote this famous piece. Some of you might have uh, read it. It was a letter to his nephew. And he, he wrote it very intentionally on a particular day. It was the 100-year anniversary of the Emancipation, Emancipation Proclamation. And in it, he offers his reflections about his nephew's future as a black man in this country. And he says something striking, and he offers to his nephew a, discreep, a description of white people's racial ignorance. And, he, and, and he, he offers this description when he says, they are in effect trapped in a history which they do not understand. Until they under, and until they understand it, they cannot be released from it. Ah, they are in effect trapped in a history which they do not understand. And until they understand it, they cannot be released from it. So poignant in this context. And I think it would be safe to expand this in in the sense that our minds are trapped in particular histories. This is what comes with society, is a whole history around race, around gender, around age, ability, and the list goes on. And that that are shaped by society. And yes, I want to point out probably all of you here that your mind's going to be shaped in unique ways around these things, yet still shaped. Different, maybe, in various ways between each and every, every one of us. But possibly still trapped in its own particular ways around these
And one possible way to understand these histories in order to be released from them is partly through this path and practice. Becoming curious about this realm. But how is the mind relating to other bodies? And it's, it, it's, again, it's not necessarily stopping the mind from perceiving in some of these ways, but rather not being trapped by them. There's a kind of simplistic way of, of doing this. In, in some ways, I, I, I hesitate to give this to meditators because it's maybe too simplistic, but it's so great for daily life, which is um, I'm not responsible for the thirst, first thought that arises, but I am responsible for the second thought and the first action. Does this make sense? Because do you see how it fits with this? And of course, there's more thoughts than this. Oh yeah, the first thought's just going to arise. Or thoughts. Oh, but I'm responsible. I need to be uh, careful with the second thought and especially the first action. And this helps because it's not about stopping the mind. What's needed is just to notice. This is one of the things that allows sense restraint to happen because when I can notice, I'm less likely to be hooked. And of course, this is, this is just uh, uh, not in the visual field. So many other ways we perceive bodies. You know, we hear bodies. We hear bodies moving sometimes loudly, softly, softly smelling bodies, thinking about bodies. And again, this whole dynamic can unfold in this way. Being sensitive to that. And, and yes, I want to say I am simplifying this, but I'm simplifying it so that there's a gateway for you to become curious. I also want to make sure that I uh, refer to what I mentioned before of how we also fabricate, fabricate our, ourselves in ways that are unskillful. Hopefully this is something that you're also discovering. You know, a core dynamic of this mind especially in the early years of my practice, was this deep sense of unworthiness. I mean, it felt like it was like a a bottomless pit sometimes, the felt sense of it. Such a a deep sense of lack, like I'm no good, I'm never enough. It was such a deep tangle in my mind. There was such a person created. It was so fascinating what would happen. It was like there would be an experience that this mind and body would have And then my mind was so skillful of kind of reflecting back, see what happened? There's another confirmation. You're no good. You really didn't do enough. And it was just a habit. No matter what the experience was, it could conjure it, could fabricate it in a way that confirmed that creation of me. That sense of unworthiness. And so I, I want to acknowledge some of you might be able to relate to this flavor or you might be aware of other flavors. How does your mind create yourself in this way that confines you? Have you noticed this? Have you felt the tangle? Same realm to free ourselves from such a thing. And mind, mind is society. Some of this is, is shaped by family, by society by history. 
So back to sensory straight in regard to others. Being aware of the sense doors in a way that opens up the possibility for a responsive heart. So how, how can you engage in this sense restraint? Some of it I've already spoken to a little bit. Some of it is just around noticing, being aware, with a sense of softness. So I'm not reactive to it, but I can just notice it and then, and then uh, allow the, 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 the system to unwind and not get hooked. Because sometimes that's all that's needed. You know, there was an a interview of James Baldwin. It was in, uh, in Berkeley in 1979, and he, he had this uh, great thing that he said. He said, the world changes according to the way people see it. And if you alter it, even by a millimeter, the way people look at reality, then you can change it. To me, this is, this is what we're doing, is, is, is this sense of changing the way this mind perceives experience so that then the world can change. Okay, so let's, let's check this out. Should we do a little experiment around this? I'm going to bring up one body. So I'm going to need your, your kind of your, uh, as best you can, and I know this is going to be a little imperfect, your visual um, attention up here to me. We'll see what happens. You never know what happens with these experiments. Okay, you ready? Did you notice what happened? Right? What happened right there? Did, did you feel the, 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 the it's almost like the, the, the eyes get grabbed? They're really good at grabbing your eyes, right? Did you notice that? Zoom. This is what happens sometimes with a sight. I mean, hopefully... They're hoping that you, you think they're cute. So we're going to go on that, that, that valence. I never know, you know, it go either way. <laughs> but this is what happens with the attention sometimes when there's, when there's some creature that's like super attractive, right? <laughs> like there's just like this draw. And then, and, 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 and that's what happens. And maybe you notice this in the dining hall. I guess this is my confession. Like the cookies, like all of you disappeared and there were the cookies. Like, oh, cookies. Oh, yeah. Ooh. Mm. Right? There's this, this visual object that, that it feels like it grabs the attention. And of course, I, I want to bring this back. Of course, it's... Um, it might not be as extreme as this. They're really good looking and attractive. So it doesn't, you know, it might not happen with other things like the piggy. But it's, it's similar. Like once, once a body draws us, often, off, often what's going to happen is that other bodies that are different from that, that don't draw us, become invisible. They've done studies around this. I think it's more attractive around, uh, I mean, complex around societal uh, attraction. 
And it, it, you can feel often what it's going to do to one of the sense gates. It can even be with a sound, like a, a pleasant sound. It's still going to pull the, 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 the senses in a particular way. And so often what can be so interesting is to play with the senses, like in the, you can do this in hearing or in the visual field, is sometimes playing with, it's like allowing the visual field to be a bit more relaxed. Because then sometimes I can notice when something uh, feels like it, it grabs it or, or, the, or the, the, the visual field gets, the mind gets hooked on something. So I can begin to be aware of that dynamic or with the sound, whether it be, Pleasant or unpleasant. And sometimes you can get that sense if you just right now, sometimes you can feel, sometimes what I'll do, if, if, and you can invite you to do this, is imagine that you can relax the activity of hearing. Like it just opens and relaxes right now. And relaxing the, the field of vision. And sometimes that's what I want to play with in order to become sensitive to these dynamics of how the senses can get, quote-unquote, grabbed. If it's not getting grabbed, it's really what's happening in the mind. But it can feel like that. But it can be a, a support for exploring this sense restraint. And it is, uh, just to keep in mind, just these things I've been talking about, too, in, in terms of you know how we are when we're together in terms of this. So sometimes what can help with this is, with the restraint is relaxing the senses. And then we're just noticing, noticing what arises. You're gonna notice when the the attention gets pulled, so part of it is attentional. Then we wanna notice the kinds of perceptions that are there to come back even to Vedna, pleasant or unpleasant, or neither of those. The stories that get created and then sometimes the second arrow around those stories. Oh, I'm such a bad person because the thought arose or because I feel like this. Or this doesn't make sense because of what Brian was saying. Just to notice all that so that we can begin to step out of the, the, the tangle, the possible tangle of where that can lead. And remember, especially with bias, what we're really interested in is just the sensitivity to the quote-unquote first thought. That's what we're looking for. It's just a it's it's a it's a tricky thing. It's it's the willingness just to be honest with ourselves, but also not to assume that we're going to have such thoughts or misdirections around whatever it is, gender or body size or whatever. But just to notice, and then to have this other question is, uh, what state of mind? is hearing when it happens or what state of mind is seen when it, when an experience of a body arises cuz that's what i want to be sensitive oh there's a little aversion oh there's a little bit of like ah i want the piggy oh do we all get a piggy for the retreat wanting <laughs> just to notice that and to also notice that at times maybe there's just seeing there's just hearing and there's mindfulness and equanimity, not to assume that there's also reactivity. Lastly, I want to step away from sense restraint to say that there's that one, that one practice which is helpful, right? There's experience, like the experience of bodies, and then noticing the perceptions. Older, younger, gender, size, color, whatever it is. And then 
noticing if it's just like, oh, that's, that's just what it is. Well, yeah, mind perceiving ability, whatever it is. Okay, and there's equanimity there. Oh, interesting. There's a little bump there. Oh, interesting. I think there's another facet to this, too, uh, which we've started to go over, too, is, is that part of this path and this practice is not only this skill of noticing, but it's also actively perceiving in different ways. So there are a number of, the, of practices that the Buddha gives us that are about learning how to perceive experience in particular ways. The classical ones are to learn how to perceive experience in terms of perceiving that it's impermanent, perceiving that it's unreliable or unsatisfactory, and perceiving not-self. Sanya, that's the word he uses. Those are perceptions that we're cultivating and learning about to learn how to skillfully perceive so it frees the heart. And then what are some other perceptions, some of that we've explored this time? To learn how to perceive others through the lens of kindness, to perceive others through the lens of compassion and appreciative joy, also with interwoven with equanimity. I think it's so cool. One of the things I love to do on retreat because I feel like it helps shape my heart in this, in this realm is just perceiving, taking in the feeling of the goodness of others here in the silence. And to get the basis of this down, which is simply nurturing this feeling of kindness of others, often I do it during the in-between times. It's not like I'm doing anything different, but I'm just allowing myself to feel that. Oh, I'm surrounded by goodness in some way. Can I feel moved by that and to open up my heart in that, um, in that dimension? It's so important because it also creates the basis of, of community, this ability to do this. And again, please don't universalize this teaching. There are times where the system is going to feel some fear or concern or worry about being around others, and sometimes you do need to listen to that. And I think I'd like to end now with this particular practice of learning how to perceive others in a way to, to, to modulate some of this, um, uh, what the mind how the mind can get entangled around the senses around bodies. And hopefully you'll hear in this poem, it's a way to evoke some of the Brahma Viharas. I think it's a beautiful reflection. And it's a poem by Ellen Bass. It really is around bodies. So the name of the poem is, poem is If You Knew. And she begins with this question. What if you knew you'd be the last to touch someone? Like if, if you were taking tickets, for example, at the theater, tearing them, giving back the ragged stubs, you might take care to touch that palm, brush your fingertips along the lifeline's crease. When a man pulls his wheeled suitcase too slowly through the airport, when the car in front of me doesn't signal, when the clerk at the pharmacy won't say thank you, I don't remember they're going to die. A friend told me she'd been with her aunt. They had just had lunch, and the waiter, a young gay man with plum black eyes, 
joked as he served the coffee, kissed her aunt's powdered cheek when they left. Then they walked half a block and her aunt dropped dead on the sidewalk. How close does the dragon's spume have to come? How wide does the crack in heaven have to split? What would people look like if we could see them as they are? Soaked in honey, stung and swollen, reckless, pinned against time. Can you remember they're going to die? As she says, how close does the dragon's fume have to come? How wide does the crack in heaven have to split? What would people look like if we could see them as they are, soaked in honey, stung and swollen, reckless, pinned against time? Can you remember this about all the people around you on this retreat? It changes something. It changes the way I behold all of you when I remember that. My perception, my heart changes. And it truly is, for me, the true revolution. Thank you. Thank you for your attention. Take a a minute just to settle and sit here. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.